please stay tuned to a special Ecotones edition of Forthright Radio. There's an ancient saying that only fish do not know water. So we can consider the water. I mean, we can't even see it. We're swimming in this water with these fish in water. And so the metaphor is at one point, and right now for human beings, it's become really important that we go on and take those little nubbins of legs and climb up on the pond's edge. Then we get to have and see the water, and we get to see the meadow. And as we crawl a little more, we get to see the forest and the mountains beyond, an ecotone at every step. Welcome to Ecotones. I'm Joy LaClaire. On this edition of Ecotones, we hear from Dr. Mary M. Clare and author Gary Ferguson about their work in involving the concept of full ecology, how regaining our sense of kinship, relationship, and interconnection, and being guided by balance, rhythm, and harmony, we can survive and thrive the disruptions of our personal embedded environments and the greater environments of which we are a natural part. Gary is the author of 26 books, the latest of which is The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World, published by Dutton. Welcome to Ecotones. Thank you very much for joining us today, Mary, Mary and Claire, and Gary Allen Ferguson. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you for welcoming into your home also. And Gary recently said, by dumb luck, and I added divine intervention. The chance to meet one another in our mid-50s and fall in love. At the time, I was living in Portland and had been for 30 years, and Gary was living in Red Lodge, Montana, and had been for 30 years. So for a time, we did both places. And the time came that it seemed right for us to consolidate instead of driving all that way, although we enjoyed it. And we looked all around the country for where we'd want to live. And of course, the Intermountain West we had biases in this direction, and we ended up here in Bozeman. Gary, you have a new book that's come out, The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, and one of the important lessons is diversity. And that we are on Shoshone Bannock, Chippewa Cree, Crow land. And the presence there, there are some urban Indian people here in Bozeman, but a lot of my work historically has been in the area of diversity and social justice and there's so many kinds of diversity. Tell us more about your work, Mary. There's several ways of going into that description. I have my first graduate degree, a master's degree, in teaching and soon it became clear to me that I would be better used if I were working with people who were training to be teachers or who were actually teachers. So I decided to 
check out doctoral programs. That wasn't from a family where anybody had a doctorate. And so that was kind of an adventure. I'm pretty good at school, <laughs> so I ended up doing pretty well, and I got a PhD in psychological and cultural studies. But my area of specialization was application in schools and communities, because my bias has always been that all of this knowledge that we have generated and the public knowledge is filtered through privileged people, it's great. It's great knowledge, but if it doesn't affect the way we are in the world, so what? And so it was important to me in the process of getting this advanced Doctor of Philosophy designation to be sure that there were applications for the things that I was investigating. So that's the way that I pursued my career. My PhD is from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. So when I first heard of Lincoln, I, I was raised in Texas. I got out the Rand McNally and found that it was in the crack of that you know, double page. And I pulled it, I went, oh, there, there it is. So that was a new experience to go up to Nebraska. Most of my career was in Portland at Lewis and Clark College and the graduate school there. And for the last half of that career, I had the enormous privilege of getting to work pretty directly with the 58 tribes of the Pacific Northwest and that leadership as kind of a support person for the tribal leadership to gain. Well, the leaders who approached us originally were interested in, in building a think tank, but what we ended up doing was bringing together leadership to author a curriculum in indigenous ways of knowing at the graduate level, so completely based in indigenous epistemology. And I was just the non-Indian person with the access to the higher education institution that was able to get the funding to support the convening of these 30 awesome human beings who I then was scribe as they articulated the curriculum. So I've had a lot of good fortune in my life to be with people of all different backgrounds. And when you say epistemology, what do you mean by that? Ways of seeing and knowing. So we don't even notice that every day we're walking through the world and we're looking through these eyes and these understandings that are actually limited to all the experiences that we've had and learned. And that's considerable, but that means what you see and what I see when we're looking at that grandmother tree out there is slightly different. And it really is different when it comes to things like how we wish to take care of water delivery to homes, making public policy decisions or decisions about education and who gets to be married and those kinds of things. Gary, how about you? What is your background? Well, I, early on, became infatuated with the Rocky Mountains. I was living in the corn and the rust of South Bend, Indiana. That's where I grew up as a boy. And I told my parents when I was nine that I was moving to the Rockies. When I was 13, I showed up in the living room with a wad of cash I'd saved from mowing lawns and shoveling snow and told them that this was enough for me to make the trip on my purple Stingray bike to Colorado and expected them to say, well done. But shockingly, they said, no, we don't think you're going to do that. Uh, so I had to wait a few more years before I got out. But while I was majoring in environmental sciences at Indiana University, I 
ended up in a wonderful position in the Sawtooth Mountains of Idaho as an interpretive naturalist with a mentor who would be really one of the most influential human beings in my life, a man named Chuck Ebersole. And that set me finally on the path of being able to understand more deeply and articulate through writing my relationship with nature and the natural world. I am the beneficiary of having spent lots of time with very competent scientists, whether they're wolf biologists or botanists or ecologists or geologists, as well as some indigenous people. And and it's through them that I I think I've been able to find my own path. I, I do feel sometimes as a Mary used the word scribe, a, a bit of a, a scribe. I'm a, I'm a messenger for some of the amazing work and relationships that people out there around the world are, are working very hard to sustain. You have written quite a few books. How many is it at this point? 26. Uh, the Eight Master Lessons of Nature was book number 26. So, yes, it's it's been quite a run. And some fairly simple, so they weren't all Moby Dick by any, any means. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so, you and Mary have come together and you have created something you're calling Full Ecology. What do you mean, your interpretation of what full ecology means? Well, in simplest terms to me, and Mary and I have talked about this at length, it is about reclaiming our human nature. We really do tend to forget that we are the natural world and all the incredible superpowers that nature has to not only survive but thrive and thrive in the wake of some enormous disruption, we have access to as well. And so the work we're doing in full ecology is meant to help people break down the walls that we have, for a variety of reasons, built over really several thousand years uh, between us and, and the natural world, the wisdom of the natural world. And so what we discovered after the accident of meeting, then came the... Oh, gosh, what would you say, the alchemy, as we walked and talked and walked and talked between our two areas of career focus, drawing across different disciplines, we were able to see that there was a fullness missing from discussions of human-caused climate change, repair of human-caused climate change, and the whole notion of environment and ecology. So... We came up with this idea of full ecology as this larger picture of biological ecologies, but also social ecologies. Because the fact is, any of us humans who care very deeply for the environment are limited in what we can do by how healthy our internal and interpersonal ecologies are. And so what we haven't had is enough practice building skills for being present with those ecologies. And the thing that Gary and I have really seen is that full ecology is an opportunity to upgrade the story you tell yourself about being human. Because without even noticing it, most of us go through the day in this deeply socialized orientation to being separate, isolated, singular individuals. And that's true to an extent with the edges of our bodies. But we think from there 
and make decisions from there, no wonder that's a vulnerable place. That's some scary business. The fact is, we are completely at home. We belong entirely to the natural world that is what brought human beings to be. So here we are. What would happen if we shifted our thinking to draw from connection first, rather than fear and anxiety that comes naturally from the experience of isolation. So we're pushing that edge in human sensibility. That's what full ecology is. It isn't just a mental trick or a trick of imagination. It really is, I think to us, an alignment with reality. When we go out and walk under a tree uh, in leaf, that tree is giving us the oxygen we need. We're giving it the carbon dioxide. It's releasing chemicals called phytoncides that are strengthening our heart and fortifying our immune system. This is a fairly recent discovery by uh, biologists. It's an airborne chemical that's exuded by a variety of vegetation, but certainly trees, and trees, if they were broadleaf trees, they would be trees in leaf. And then some other ground plants release this. And for reasons that we're not exactly sure of, a variety of creatures, mammalian creatures like humans, that inhale those chemicals. They're not really pheromones, but they are nonetheless chemicals exuded into the air by the process of photosynthesis by the tree and the plants. When we inhale them, they actually go to these various systems. Most of them in us are vital organs, our lymphatic system, our immune system, and they actually have the effect of fortifying the cellular vitality within those systems. So we've started to realize recently that well, when you go out in nature, your brain chemistry changes. Just looking at the top of a tree actually reduces your cortisol levels. But now we're seeing that there's a, an extra layer of physiological benefit that we, until very recently, couldn't have even imagined from us being in the presence of nature, and I'm not talking about necessarily just being in wilderness, any amount of green space or city park can provide these benefits for the people who live there and, and other creatures as well. The reason we can think and have this conversation is because we've got tens of millions of microbes that were not with us when we were born. They've come to live with us since then that are breaking down our food and, and making those nutrients available to our brains and every other part of our bodies. The sun, infrared light is what's setting the melatonin levels that allow us to sleep at night. So that we really are waltzing in this grand web of connection. And for a variety of reasons, as Mary suggests, we don't tend to think that way. It isn't that our separation thinking is wrong. It's just that it's hugely limited. And the costs of those limits are the kinds of things we're seeing in climate change today. So one of the things that might be interesting to you is that likely, let's just say, your 27th book will be co-authored between the two of us. Excellent. And we are working on it every day very hard, and it is on full ecology. So it's an articulation of what we mean when we say full ecology. And it is organized into four human behaviors that, when engaged can really support our being a part of the solution rather than a part of the problem. So what essentially we've done is to put legs on eight master lessons with that.
I also want to travel back to your acknowledging the tribal history of the land on which we're speaking now. Many, many different situations. Before anything else happens, that acknowledgement is made. And I think that's long overdue for one thing. Mm, yeah. Indeed. And this is, as you may be suggesting, just a way of, of seeing. It's a shift of perspective. It's a widening of and a return to a greater and a wider reality. The people who were on this land and are on this land still have a tremendous knowledge base and connection base that they have built and draw on. And for us to have for so long assumed that this group or some other group was inferior to our perception, our way of seeing the world, has really been unfortunate. I think one of the things we get into in the full ecology work is Mary has had a lot of experience with the difference between description and evaluation, and she learned some of that, and she can talk to you about it, by working with the tribes. And so while we do need to grieve perhaps what has been an ignorance on our part as a dominant culture for a very, very long time, and, and there is much worth grieving there, we also ultimately have to come to the place of where are we now and how can we go forward together from here. Well, Mary, what would you say the difference between evaluation and description is? Or what are the differences? I shouldn't assume it's just one thing. Well, I, it's sort of a practice. One of the things, here would be an example. You have heard children called autistic, that autistic child. Well, really, it's a child who has autism. So the evaluation resides in autistic child because it's a little more complicated than that, but it's because of the kind of knee-jerk association with the word autism, earned or not. So the autistic child versus the child with autism, that's descriptive. This child has this condition. The child isn't this condition. And so over and over again, what I would hear from the elders in Indian country was they would tell the story of contact or they would speak of what they saw happening with children in Indian education, Native American children in, in the schools. And they wouldn't pull any punches but they were describing. And when they got to the end of describing what the circumstances were or had been, they would say, not, and I hate all you white people and you're gonna to have to pay. That's not what they'd say. They would say, and here we are all together. This is the situation. What do we do now? And part of the learning that is before us really both of us, you and me, Gary, given our predominantly European ancestry, is that we're deeply socialized in a kind of authority, assertion, and a kind of sense of, well, the way we make sense is the standard. Everybody makes sense this way. Not so. And so part of what's happening on this ecotone between cultures is the opportunity for people socialized like we are to get quiet and listen and really hear the different ways of seeing and knowing that are around us all the time. It's a hard exercise. Here's a quote that recently from my nephew who is Klamath Cree and Plingit. He said, manifest destiny is just a wrong turn. It's never been where I stand 
belongs to me. It's where I stand, I belong. And that's the fundamental difference between this separate thinking and the license and the urgency that gives to dominating things that can't really be dominated. I mean, they can for a bit, but it's not sustainable. And that comes from description. You get in an evaluative posture when you're in a separate stance. And it also brings up, for me, the tragedy of the losing of so many languages around the world. Because language is, just the way you were saying, between autistic child and child with autism. And that's just in the English language, what can matter. And the perceptions connected with language, it's hard to know what they are, but they are definitely there. And losing the languages is losing the relationship of consciousness to the world. And that is a loss for all of us. Well said. It's losing ways of seeing. Yes, yes. You can't... The snow, I mean, that's cliche, but... Well, yeah, it is. I mean, the Inuits will have 50 different words. And those words likely emerged out of day-to-day relationships and needs and what the snow provided them. But we wouldn't be able, because of our limited experience, to even begin at first to conceive of snow that way. And language is a symbolic representation of, of our experience. And so when we, as you suggest, lose the language, we lose, we lose people's experience. We lose the wisdom that went along with that symbol system. I've observed with varying degrees of fury for decades uh, the paucity in the English language for synonyms for love mm-hmm. and the abundance for naming different kinds of crimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many ways to say robbery, whatever, you get the drift. Yes. And it's the same thing, like what matters to a culture, they have lots of words to describe minutiae about. Right. Well, and here again, I think you can take what Mary just said about the separation thinking versus relational mm-hmm. thinking or interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. Love is an interconnected concept. It's not, it doesn't lend itself so easily to measurement and empirical research and scientific method, and therefore it gets excluded. But this the theft and, and other things, that fits right into separation. Thinking, well, and so. it fits right into the panic that arises from the belief that I'm separate, yes, that I'm isolated, absolutely. that I'm absolutely. all on my own. It's legitimate that we have, we all have that experience. It is a legitimate experience, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the full story. And we reasoning from there has been quite dangerous over the long haul. There are various reasons why we're so prone to separation thinking, but one of the things that I've written about in the Eight Master Lessons of Nature and we talk about often is just the scientific heritage that we have. Beginning in the 1600s with people like Descartes, there was a great fidelity that was established to subject-object thinking. The scientist would remove himself, sadly, way more than herself, but himself from the world as if that was possible and then isolate the thing that he was studying from the rest of the world from all the relationships that thing was in possession of and so we start with that illusion that that could be done in the first place but that over time was so successful and it led to some wonderful clever discoveries from rocket ships to solar panels to probably the rivets on your blue jeans but It's, again, a very limited way of understanding the world, and it quickly spread into every 
aspect of Western culture, every institution, education and economy and politics. And so it is, Mary and I often say, the water we swim in. It doesn't make it wrong, but there is so much more of the world out there to teach us and to align ourselves with as we move forward in this very challenging time. Gary, you tell stories from ancient mythology to native stories to make your points. Probably balance, rhythm, and harmony. Let's talk about that. That is a perfect example of a gift of wisdom or learning given to me by someone else, in this case Jack Gladstone, the phenomenal musician and Native American here in Montana. And Jack says that that's how he learned to approach his music, was by staying true. Does the music honor balance and rhythm and harmony? And if you pay attention to those things, what you have as a rough stew pot of creative ideas can be guided or nudged gently into what then becomes a successful song. It occurred to me while he was speaking about this that this really is also, and I think Jack would, would totally agree, not just the way of music, it is the way of, of life. It is a perspective that helps us honor qualities that can help us be more connected and help us live more sustainable, more interesting, more compassionate lives. Are the actions we take in service of balance or are they kind of acquiring stuff for my comfort and, and to heck with you? Are they in service of rhythm? Can we develop a sense of time and timing with the passage of seasons and the need for things to gestate for a while instead of our immediate gratification culture that teaches us if we want it, let's get on Amazon and it'll be here tomorrow. That is skewing our sense of ability to have a relationship with time. And then harmony, harmony is really where interconnection comes in. Not that any life on this planet has ever evolved to be a rugged individual. There's no such thing on this planet. All of it is created and is sustained by virtue of the quality and the integrity of the relationships that it finds itself in, including humans. And so that's... That's been very helpful, that concept. And so, ironically or beautifully or something, if one of your listeners were to go out and look up Jack's music and order it on Amazon, without fail, that music, consciously or not, serves to remind the organism that is hearing it, has purchased it, and enjoys it. It, it just brings in the connection that we have with this balance and harmony and rhythm going on all the time, sustained from the moment our lives show up in these little heartbeats to the moment the bodies drop, its own rhythm. It's all very natural. The fact that we have these frontal lobes kind of messes with us, <laughs> like a lot. But it's also this very cool skill to be able to be self-reflective. How amazing. But that, we forget, has its own balance and harmony and rhythm. It's wonderful, yes. The people who order Jack's music and listen to it don't have to know any of this to enjoy That's right. it. But and to be connected. Exactly. But the, the fact he's, he's made this real by talking about it, putting it out there, has had the effect on me of going out and seeing not just how his music, but how life in general adheres to those 
three truths in the world at large. And so he's given me a gift not just of his music, but of teaching me that his music succeeds to the extent he thinks it does by virtue of honoring those those perspectives that mm, in day-to-day life we tend to be way too busy to even begin to consider. So that's a really good example of what Gary and I are doing with, are hoping, yes, aspire to do with full ecology. And that is to take as many ways that we can see for linking all of our tendency towards separate thinking into this larger picture of our connection so that gradually, and really some could argue we don't have a whole lot of time, we can shift. We've got it in us. We all know we're connected. We just don't know how to act from there or to be explicit with ourselves about it. What does that mean? And so a story like Gary's, he was sitting in this audience, heard Jack say those things, went, aha, and then Gary can pass that along in ways. So we become scribes again, just offering, here's one way, here's another way. Here are some bigger considerations, some tinier considerations for helping those who are ready and wish to make explicit moves, catch ourselves in our separate thinking and not beat ourselves up, be descriptive there. Catch ourselves and just notice how deep this runs and big surprise. We've had, I don't know, anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 years of practice as a species with the illusion of separation. And these concepts like balance and harmony, I mean, sometimes they're talked about in such a way and so often that they seem sort of woo-woo and oh well that's an ideal world in some paradise far away but right now a number of international corporations are really trying to take to heart those concepts and develop what are known as circular economies so for instance apple computer right now is looking into how can we create computers and ultimately not harvest any new natural resources that become so good at recycling what was in the last computer that we can isolate those essential individual parts, recast them into the new technology that we've come up with to drive the new computers and really have a a system that is circular. And so we've got a long way to go, but there are signs that some very big players in the world are paying attention and trying to move more in the direction of those concepts like balance, harmony, and rhythm. Because empirically, that's where it ceases being woo-woo. Just check it out. I've often said in my classes, don't believe me. Check it out for yourself. There's hardly anything woo-woo to Mm, this is only a matter of life and death for the species. I mean, it matters how we think when we decide what we're going to do. Are we thinking from an embattled, isolated position? Or are we thinking in terms of, wait, there's a lot of connection here. How can we fortify that? How can we stand on the strengths that we're all bringing right now? It seems to me connected to the idea of rhythm, too, is how in the United States, at least, our time sense has become so speeded up. And I'm not sure how to get around that. Mm. I see when I go on walks, seven, eight out of ten people I pass have earplugs in connected to a phone. So they're hearing something other than what's around them. 
it's almost, it seems like as if people are actively pursuing separation mm. in this era. Many people, obviously, not everyone. And I'm so glad that you too are addressing this and trying to come up with ways to reverse that or at least challenge it. Do you, you know, know, I think it's an inviting us all back home. That's part of it. Just come back home. And here's the other thing. My guess is that every one of those people are at, at the base of it motivated to connect. They're getting information, they're on the phone with somebody talking, yes. um, and yeah, it has the effect of isolation from the world around them right then. It's just curious to me how there is, I really sense that there's this, it could be a quickening, but it's also a deep, deep hunger. From when we were little kids, you tell great stories about how little kids are so oriented towards how cool the natural world is, their total relationship with that. We haven't lost that. We know that we're connected. We just don't know. We long for it. We long for being reassured, for resting there. I don't quite know how to do that. I see what you mean, and I do think that, that we do have the definite impact, but I think the longing is really one more for connection. It's interesting that you say that because I was thinking of the time perspective, but that's also like a spatial perspective, the person talking on the phone while they're mm -hmm. taking their walk, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. that's a, thank you for, for that. I, I do think that all of us, we do live in a culture that moves at a very high rate of speed, mm -hmm. as, as so many cultures do around the world now. Within that high speed, even 20 minutes a day of just disconnecting from the devices and being contemplative and quiet that increasingly will seem like an alarming proposition to people mm -hmm. the, the longer they go without having done it but there's something that's so wonderful about just going into even a small corner of nature that psychologists call soft fascination that mm -hmm. when you're in a a nature system you can't really comprehend all that's going on but at any given second, you can be delighted or curious about some aspect of it. And so there's a kind of diffuse focusing that goes on in the natural world that creates this soft fascination. And now psychologists are really adamant that that soft fascination relationship is what allows the brain chemically to calm down and essentially recharge itself. So if, if you really are leading a high, very productive life and you want to sustain that productivity, there's nothing better for you to do than to go for the kind of reset that can happen in those 20 or 30 minutes or whatever your day can afford, perhaps out in a natural setting where you can refresh and go back to that task you were doing in the morning and be even more efficient. This is something Einstein did. And was an enormous fan of it by going out of his lab on the Princeton campus to the Institute Woods and knowing that he couldn't comprehend it and intentionally blowing his mind as he tried to follow the different strands of what his thoughts were about how these beings were related and then in that blown mind state accessing this very creative and, and bottomless source of perspective that he then took back to the lab and made very good use of. One of the things that is symptomatic of how much we long for connection is anxiety. And anxiety is on the rise. In fact, it's passed up depression since 
2016 and its frequency as a difficulty that people experience. And so we do turn to our screens to salve that anxiety. And so what Gary just described is something that people might try. You know, meditation got kind of popular and mindfulness. And, and these remain somewhat popular right now. But imagine people who aren't really ready to do those sorts of things. Or even if they do those sorts of things, they become rote. Just going outside for 20 minutes or looking out the window for 20 minutes, no other agenda. It's a big ask because 20 minutes is a lot of time. But that as a way of being with and quieting anxiety a bit, it's just another opportunity that is with us all the time. Uh, the, the thing that Gary and I have talked about is the fact that the natural world doesn't really care whether we notice or not, but it loves us beyond all imagining, beyond any capacity we have in that kind of agape love. I wouldn't be here for one split second if it weren't for the natural world. And that's some generosity. And the natural world's not out there saying, and you owe me this much an hour. <laughs> you know, none of that. Yeah, we refer to that a lot as it's a benevolent disinterest. Life is about supporting life, and we can be a part of that too. We are a part of that. It's only when we build walls against it that we, that we have trouble. But one of the effects of going out in the way I just described, and, and for Mary and I both, is to really, when you understand how interconnected you are, when you get a chance to see that you're benefiting from this benevolent disinterest, there's a kind of kinship that begins to build. And so if you can imagine the love and what you would do for the sake of your friends, your best friends, or your family, your children, that kind of kinship actually is possible for us to glimpse and ultimately, I think, really embrace in a pretty full manner by virtue of going out and having the perception to see it, because that is the truth. And so if we go forward from here in the face of things like climate change, feeling kinship for the earth, then it becomes not okay for us to abuse it any more than it would be okay for someone to abuse our child or our friend. Uh, and so the natural willingness to create a society that respects that interconnectedness is, is, is what's hanging in the balance in, in this in this new perspective, this new way of being, which is really a very old way of being mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and as I said before, we can keep the barriers built. We can continue walling ourselves off from the natural world and one another, and the species won't be long for the planet. That's just what happens on an ecosystem. Mostly, organisms don't make those decisions consciously. And we have the opportunity to change the way we are with our consciousness and to see what's really going on here in terms of our connection. Well, more and more in the rhetoric around people who are becoming more and more militant around climate disruption, extinction rebellion, that sort of thing, they are using the language of kinship. They are using the language of responsibility for generations to come. Whereas before, the preponderance of the rhetoric was more science-oriented. Mm -hmm. We can only get mm -hmm. to 
400 parts per etc. At least that's what I'm seeing. Do you that, share that? I think that's an excellent example of the way separate thinking can be a great tool because science does have a lot to show us in terms of guideposts and maybe pay attention to this and that and this, but they're tools. They're tools for us then to make decisions from relationship about how to proceed next. So science is, well, it sometimes is too filtered through cultural agendas, but for the most part, its aspiration is to be descriptive. And with that tool, separate thinking is a great tool in the context of relationship. We've just had it backwards. I do see what you're seeing, that environmentalism is really speaking in the language of kinship and speaking in the language of relationship. And, and this is the, the wonderful thing. There's every reason for us to all, all of us, act more responsibly for the sake of what kinds of messes we could save future generations. And that alone can be a fabulous motivation. But I think what we forget is that in every day we live in that way, there's a deep sweetness that comes from our own perception of kinship, our own relief at being aligned with what this benevolent disinterest is really offering us. So yes, it's, it's helping by, in, in no uncertain terms, those who will come later. But it's also giving us in this life, in these days, a much more fully satisfying and contented and empowered way of living. And connected. Because we have spent a lot of time lonely. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that you would want to make this available publicly, but the fact is we can't know what's going to happen. We can't know how it's going to come out for the species. But how astonishing that the three of us get to sit here and have this conversation. What are the chances that the little needle would be threaded so many times to have a procession of ancestors that led to you, that led to me, that led to Gary. I mean, that's some wild business that so these kind of raw materials would come together into this experience right now, talking with each other. Ancestors recycling carbon molecules and uh, carbon atoms and through every conceivable iteration over, you know, hundreds of millions of years and which were in fact stardust and now this has come together, as Mary says, in these three people sitting here having this conversation. Not to mention the people who will listen to it. Right. And so, I mean, really the question is, what are the chances... And in answer to that is the action, oh, that scares the hell out of me. Could be. Everybody has that choice and can make that choice. Or it can be, wow, I get to be awake today. I get to connect with these people today. And that can sound all woo-woo, but check it out. I think a little woo-woo is warranted. <laughs> yeah, and so, so we don't know how it will come out. But along the way, loving and caring for one another it's worth consideration. Thank you for speaking up for science. (laughs) And more and more, the science is 
verifying the, the things that you were saying about connection. Mm -hmm. uh, Gary, in your book, you talk about the mycorrhizal... Um, yeah, just fungal networks. The fungal networks. Yeah, right. And I loved the part about the elder trees nourishing the younger trees. Would you, would you share that with us? Yes, these fungal networks, again, something that's fairly new to science. There was just a terrific scientist, a woman in Western Canada, who uh, actually pioneered this work. But it shows us that underneath the ground, the trees, which have actually evolved over millions of years with fungal networks, have done so in a way that all of the various root systems across species, not just individual species, in a forest are connected. The fungal networks are getting energy from the tree roots and in turn the fungus itself is breaking down essential nutrients that the trees need. But in this process of connecting, and we're talking hundreds and hundreds of miles in a, in, in a very small space under your feet, the trees have evolved to be able to communicate with other members, again, not just of their species, but other members of the forest in general, by sending alerts, if you will, through these fungal networks to other trees saying, I'm getting munched on by caterpillars right now. You might want to tune up your chemical defense responses. When a young tree is struggling because of lack of sunlight to process nutrients and to generate photosynthesis in the way that it needs to, the elder trees and the, and the parent tree, if you will, is especially prone to doing this to young saplings growing at her feet to send extra nutrition, sugars basically, to that young tree so that that growth can happen. And it's to the point now we're realizing that when an old matriarch tree is about to, to die and is going through the early stages of decline, it will likely send what resources it has left to those young saplings around it so that they have a better chance of carrying on. I mean, to be purely metaphorical, here's another wonderful thing for us to consider about elderhood. This is a passing along of strength, a passing along of resources. And the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu made this wonderful comment that it is the way of nature to take from which has excess and give to that which is lacking. This is a, almost a definition of, of elderhood at its, at its best. And so what does that mean for human beings? I think we have so much of a chance to, of course, honor the vitality and the creativity and the improvisational skills of our young people. But it also needs to join that with the wisdom of those folks who have been around a long time and may have some insights into how things unfold over the long term. So you see that kind of blending in, in other mammals, in bonobos and elephants and lions and wolves. They've got that balance between the strength of the youth and the wisdom of the older. And perhaps, again, since we're a product of nature, we would do well to see if we can integrate these various groups that too often get segregated in our culture. I was raised to respect elders just for being elders. But I'm seeing that partially because of the acceleration of technology and partially as climate disruption, a lot of the wisdom that elders used to be counted on for, for, for millennia, for the survival of species, is less and less 
applicable and less and less relevant seeming to younger people. It, Mary, I think it's another example of a perceived lack of connection. It's also, I think, partially because, at least in the United States, we've become such a mobile society. Family structure has really changed, and village structure has really changed. And I'm concerned about that. And mm. I wonder if you have any thoughts. Well, and this is where that. the shift of attention is so important and enduring option. The way that this planet and the people who have lived on it have survived or have even thrived is through knowledge and ways of being that are completely connected. So we may be seeming to move away from that and that could be our demise. I mean, it's clear to all of us that we can blow ourselves up. We're totally capable of that. But there's another side to that. And many of the youth are bringing forward their inner elderhood and saying, wait a minute, this is all connected. You guys have been acting like it's not. It is Extinction Rebellion and others. And they're not all young. It's a cross-generational initiative. So I guess the thing that is both encouraging and very instructive to me is that I can get myself very frightened by how separate we are and how we behave and all sorts of headlines. And I'm not going to say that those aren't worth attending to because they are. But is the reaction to jump into that arena as a separate individual with my dukes up or what can I do? How can I live in my life and remind other people that they have the option to live in these ancient, ancient ways? The good news is that because they're filtered through all that we've come to know in the meantime, they're brand new. They're not exactly, though. We couldn't, if we went back to doing things the way the crow people were doing things a thousand years ago here. A lot of it would burp, but a lot of it wouldn't. Now we've come through everything we've got, and as a dance teacher of mine once said, take everything you have and now add this. And so what's happening right now is the increasingly urgent call with climate breakdown to pay attention, to stop, really stop, and see what we're doing and then to learn more deeply what it is that's keeping, what's the payoff? Why do I keep doing this? Why do we all keep doing this? And from there, to take action in ways that support our connection rather than our separation. I hope that makes sense. One thing I'd like to add to the, your, your question about elderhood, and, and speaking now specifically about older elders as opposed to younger elders, Mary introduced me to this concept which seems to be a mainstay of how human beings grow, which is a, called the disruption of an embeddedness environment. We get used to things being one way and then, oh my gosh, something big happens. Maybe we get married or we graduate from high school or we have a, a death of a loved one. It's some kind of disruption into the stability we imagine that we've been able to assemble in our lives. And that it's through that disruption that really whatever growth is possible in a human being gets a chance to occur. 
Right now, ecology at its very cutting edge is starting to wonder if nature actually is much more about the same thing. If it is about the natural world being able to cultivate ways of responding to disruption as opposed to getting into a steady state, a climax force that basically tries to hang on. And so these, these two ways of seeing human beings and nature are emerging very quickly. So when it comes to understanding how to navigate a disruption to your environment, it's the elders who have a chance, not all of them, but who have a chance to talk to a younger person mm -hmm. about this is what you can expect this journey to be like. This is what the grief walk you probably are going to have to do to process what you just lost feels like. This is what you can keep with you as far as your essential qualities that will allow you to come back and, and thrive in even greater degrees than you did before, as odd as that may sound. So the elders of a culture, despite all of the ability for a young person to get information about all kinds of things on the internet, that sort of navigating these, these difficult aspects of the human life journey are something that really will always, I believe, be supported by intimate conversation, communication between the oldest and the rest of the culture. And so that takes the boomers stepping up. And this is an odd assignment to give over the air. And when you think about how the incidence of suicide is going up, this is people mistaking these little deaths for the big death. And it doesn't feel like a little death when you've lost everything that matters to you, when that's how it feels. That is some serious business. And so it can feel like big death. But true elders have lived long enough to where they've been through lots of those. Lots. And it doesn't make it a joyride at all, necessarily. But there is the opportunity to keep going and to build strength and to see bigger and to see better. This is a metaphor that Gary and I use that is more gentle than the notion of suicide. But you know the Chinese, Yuri already alluded to it, there's an ancient saying that only fish do not know water. So we can consider the water, I mean we can't even see it. We're swimming in this water with these fish in water. And so the metaphor is at one point, and right now for human beings, it's become really important that we go on and take those little nubbins of legs and climb up on the pond's edge, then we get to have and see the water, and we get to see the meadow. And as we crawl a little more, we get to see the forest and the mountains beyond, an ecotone at every step. But those ecotones really are the cusp on which this rattling of the embeddedness environment can be moved with instead of moved against. Well, that's a lovely way to finish. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. I see community radio as one of those tools of connection. Mm, yes. So yes. I very much appreciate your sharing your wisdom yeah. with us on oh, this. Thank you for making that happen. I, I totally agree with you. It's My an question. oasis. You have just heard a conversation with Dr. Mary M. Clare and author Gary Ferguson, recorded on December 19, 2019.
Gary is the author of 26 books, the latest of which is the Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World, published by Dutton. An ecotone is a transition zone between two biomes. It is where two communities meet and integrate. It may be narrow or wide. It may be local, the zone between a field and forest, or regional, the transition between forest and grassland. An ecotone may appear as a gradual blending of two communities across a broad area, or it can manifest as a sharp boundary. This program, Ecotones, explores the variety and diversity of the greater Gallatin Valley community and beyond, offering audio tones echoing our communities influencing and being influenced by each other, bridging limits and boundaries, and celebrating diversity. Echotones is a Beyond the Deep End production, recorded and produced by Joy LaClaire. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.